0: The American POTUS podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Sir Winston Churchill... His stubborn but smart political philosophies combined with his distinctive way with words, they inspired millions around the globe just when the world needed it most. But to strengthen and save his own country, he had to have a reliable ally in the White House. And it's no secret the prime minister could be a tough one to get along with. Winston Churchill and his relationship with our presidents, how he worked with him and created lasting friendships with them. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Author Alan Packwood is joining us for this episode on Sir Winston Churchill and his relationships with several U.S. presidents. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a fellow of Churchill College at the University of Cambridge, and the director of the Churchill Archive Center, which is home to the papers of Churchill, Thatcher, and Sir John Major, just to name a few. He's also written the book How Churchill Waged War, which we will link to... On AmericanPotus.com. He's our first international guest on American POTUS. Thanks for joining us from across the
1: pond, Alan. It's a real pleasure um, to be with you today.
2: Alan, thank you so much. I was just realizing today that we uh, first became acquainted over 15 years ago. Time really flies.
1: Yeah, it hasn't been going quite as fast as I would have liked in the last 18 <laughs>
2: months. <laughs> that, is, that is very true. Very true. But great to hear your voice again. And thank you so much for joining us. So let, let's start it the very beginning. When Churchill was born, Ulysses Grant was president of the United States. The two men shared some traits for sure. We know they both had an iron will, a real strategic genius. They both loved their cigars. But as a historian, Churchill was a great historian. What lessons do you believe he took from the American Civil War? And did he ever comment on the legacies of Grant and of Lincoln?
1: Yeah, well, that's a, a, a great opening question and a very big one. There's no doubt that as a young boy with an American mother, Churchill was fascinated by history. And we know, for example, that in 1887, he asked for an illustrated history of the Civil War um, for his birthday. So, you know, that, that interest in the Civil War is is there from a very early age. And, of course, it's a conflict that he would have studied um, at the British military academy at Sandhurst when when training to be a cavalry officer, because then, of course, the the American Civil War was a a recent campaign and um, something that the the officers were attempting to to learn from. Um, And that passion, that interest in the Civil War, I think, stays with Churchill um, all the way through his life. He makes a point in um uh, when he visits um, the u s later on and visiting many of the the civil war battlefields and there's no doubt that he admired Grant as a soldier, but not uncritically um, when he came to write his history of the english speaking peoples at the um, at, at the end of his long life and career he wrote that the Washington government now began to lean heavily upon General Ulysses Grant. This was in the sort of final year of the war. His faults and weaknesses were apparent, but so also was his stature. On the Union side, baffled, bewildered, disappointed, weary of bloodshed and expense, Grant now began to loom vast and solid through a red fog. Victory had followed him from Brock Donaldson to Vicksburg. Here were large rebel surrenders, troops, cannon, territory. Who else could show the like? So he admires Grant's success and the results he gets, but not necessarily the methods he uses to achieve them. I mean, he also writes in his history of the um, the English-speaking peoples of um, Grant's unflinching butchery in the way that, that he uses his troops. Um, and I think you know his real admiration was reserved for Lincoln, and and he did write that the death of Lincoln deprived the Union of the guiding hand which alone could have solved the problems of Reconstruction. And he also had a great admiration for Lee and 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 what General Lee was able to achieve um and in 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 spite of the odds, um, and actually wrote historical counterfactual essay speculating on. You know what would have happened if Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg? What
2: what what was the result? Well, the, the result <laughs> of that,
1: um, of course, was um, um, you know Churchill's ideal in terms of international relations, um, which is that the 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 South and the North would have been forced to come to terms. Um, the South would have allied itself very closely um, with, with with Great Britain and her empire. Um, And together they would have been able to prevent the outbreak of the First World War um, and the rise of communism. And, of course, uh, the further you go from um, the initial conceit, the more more bizarre um, um, (laughs) all of this gets. But it's it's a fascinating essay.
2: I will definitely have to look that up. Now, let's move forward just a bit. When when Churchill first visited America, Grover Cleveland was president. Do we know on that very first trip, how much attention Churchill paid to the American political scene and especially to the president in the White House?
1: Ah, well, his first trip was actually a, um, a fleeting visit in, in the sense that he was en route to see action in Cuba, um, where he was actually using some of his army leave to attach himself to the Spanish forces that were involved in putting down the Cuban national insurrection. and. This was the young Churchill, desperate to see action, desperate to sort of make a name for himself. Um, so, I mean, he was only briefly in New York, the the city of his mother's birth. And he certainly froze himself into exploring New York high society, Manhattan high society, um, and writes back, among other things, that the essence of American journalism is vulgarity divested of truth. (laughs) <laughs> um, he also vis- pays a visit to, to, to West Point where um, he's shocked at the sort of the harsh conditions um, that the cadets have to endure. I, I don't think I've seen any sort of specific re- references to the presidency or the White House. But, of course, he was staying with the American, Irish-American politician, Burt Cochran, um, who had taken Churchill under his wing. And I think it's inconceivable um, that they wouldn't have been talking politics um, at, at, at the dinner table. Um, they were certainly talking oratory because um, later in life, Churchill credits Burt Cochran um, with, with, with actually um, helping him develop um, his own speech style.
2: Well, when Churchill enters politics and enters first enters Parliament, William McKinley was president in the United States. How did Churchill view the emergence of America? onto the world stage after the Spanish-American War under President McKinley?
1: Well, of course, uh, McKinley is the first president that Churchill met. Um, He meets him in 1900 when he is on a lecture tour of the United States talking about his experiences during the the Boer War and, and, and trying to raise enough money to sort of underpin um, his political career, but he, it's it's a very clearly a very very brief meeting with Nick McKinley, and and, and they certainly don't talk um, um, policy or or, or, or politics. Um, in terms of sort of Churchill's views about the United States at that time, it, it is an interesting question. I mean, I think during the sort of Edwardian um, period, Churchill is of course very focused on launching his own political career. Um, he enters Parliament in, in in 1900. He defects from the Conservative Party to the Liberals in 1904. Um, he gets his first government position in in Asquith's cabinet as Under Secretary of State for the Colonies from the end of um, 1905. And I think he he's very focused on advancing his own career, and he's initially quite focused as well on. A, a, a more domestic agenda and and, and sort of social reform um, at, at home. And, and I think, you know, his, his view of America at this stage, I, I think, would have been a, a fairly neutral one. His primary concern in international affairs, of course, was the, the preservation and advancement of, of the British Empire. Um, and he would have been concerned about any aspects of rivalry as as, as the United States um, um, started to sort of increase its um, international role. But I think he would have also seen the US as a potential ally, as a nation that sort of shared sort of fundamental Western values. And certainly in this pre-war period, I I, I don't think, you know, he would have seen the US as a a threat in in, in any way, Um, nor would he have seen it at this stage, as sort of integral to to the survival and and, and advancement of the West. Um, I think what what changes everything for Churchill is the First World War, um, what he calls the world crisis. Because, of course, in the First World War, you see the the collapse of so many of the old European empires. You see the rise of communism um, and you see the United States, the New World, coming to to the rescue of, of the old um, from from 1917. Churchill was acutely aware of that, not least because he ended the First World War as minister for munitions in Lloyd George's government, which mean, meant that he was dealing directly with American politicians and American industrialists to supply the Western Front and, uh, um, and the war effort. And it very quickly, I think, Comes to appreciate the the the, the, the nascent and, and growing strength and potential of the United States. It's this point that he forges key relationships with people like Bernard Baruch and and, and Charles Schwab, relationships that he will then sort of carry forward in, in, into the Second World War. So I I think that you know it's from the from the First World War onwards that Churchill really starts to appreciate the strength and the potential of the United States and to develop the the policy that you'll see him deploy in in the Second World War of courting the U.S. and and its presidency. Um, But of course, that process isn't without reverses and hiccups.
2: At, At the end of the First World War, what were his views on Wilson, Wilson's 14 points and President Wilson's push for the League of Nations?
1: Well, I think Churchill in international politics, was a realist, a believer in real politic. Um, he believed that the world's problems, I think, were, were solved by great men sitting down together um, at conferences. Um, you know, he would later coin the, the, the term summit for these gatherings when, when, when he makes a call in the 1950s for a parlay at the summit. And, and he believes in, in, in summitry. I, I think, you know, He's quite prepared to sort of to, to go along with these ideals and support these ideals as long as they are backed with practical political um, mechanisms that will ensure that they work. And as long as ultimately they're backed by um, the, the, the military might of um, uh, of the British Empire and, and the United States. And, and that's his problem ultimately with with Wilson, because, of course, Um, Wilson isn't ultimately able to to deliver American involvement. Uh, America retreats into isolationism. And in November 1919, as Wilson is um, struggling with this, Churchill actually writes quite an important article called Will America Fail Us? in which um, he says that a more melancholy page in human history could hardly be conceived. And he regards the... The retreat of America into isolationism at the end of the First World War as a huge disaster.
2: I think it uh, definitely proved to be the case. Now in the twenties, I didn't realize until preparing, frankly, for this for this episode, Alan, that Churchill and President Calvin Coolidge were by no means on good terms. Uh, Churchill called Coolidge "quote a New England backwoodsman." Unquote. What what was the reason for the enmity, enmity between those two men?
1: Well, um, I think you have to look at what was going on um, on the international stage at this time um, and also the role that Churchill was playing. Churchill, by this point, is the British Chancellor of the Exchequer. So um, he is the minister in charge of the, of the, of the country's finances. Um, and this is a point where um, US-UK relations are at a real low. Um, and that is being driven to a large extent um, by, you know, an American um, insistence on on, on on reparations and, and a, a feeling on the on the British side that America is pushing too hard um, in, in, in matters of finance and isn't appreciating the huge blood sacrifice made by um, Britain and France. And then on top of that, of course, you have now rivalry starting to develop between the US and, and the UK o- over the size of their navies. Um, and of course, and it's been a fundamental of, of British policy that their navy, you know, must remain um, the, the, the largest fleet in the world. They now start to see that challenge from the US. And, and then, of course, you have Ireland uh, as, as well and, and large parts of um, the uh, 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 American electorate sympathetic to um, irish nationalism and, and and new irish state that's been created so you have a number of issues coming together um which are are damaging us uk relations um and, and churchill's view is that you know coolidge is not playing a, resol- a, a role to 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 resolve these he's making the problems worse
2: we know our nations certainly came back together when facing the axis powers and the relationship between prime minister churchill and president Franklin Roosevelt, it's been written about many times, it was central to our victory. How would you describe that relationship? Was it a real friendship? Was it based on necessity? How how did that relationship develop and how would you characterize it?
1: Well, I think like all relationships, it actually changes over time. Now, of course, um, uh, uh, initially there was... Considerable suspicion um, on the American side, and um, you know about whether Churchill was up to the job, about whether um, Britain would actually be able to stay in, it, it stay the course in the conflict. And it's for that reason, of course, that Roosevelt sends over various emissaries to to to, to sound out um, um, Churchill and 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 to sort of get an opinion on what the British should do. sending over people like Hopkins and Abel Harriman and so on. Um, and of course, none of this is helped by the fact that um, the two of the two men had met at the end of the First World War um, at a dinner um, in um, Grey's Inn in London um, at, at an occasion which Churchill then failed to remember. So when Roosevelt and Churchill meet for the first time in wartime at the Atlantic meeting off Newfoundland in August 1941, they get off to a slightly rocky start when when Churchill sort of fails to remember that they have in fact. Um, already met once before but I think they they quickly overcome these barriers I mean I think thanks to to people like Hopkins and and, and, and Harriman Roosevelt is convinced very quickly that, that that Churchill is someone um who he can do business with who sort of share um, um you know someone who is determined to sort of prosecute the war um and um, to, to its end and um of course that's reinforced by the personal correspondence that they embark on. But in that initial phase of their relationship, prior to December 1941 and Pearl Harbor, it is very much a courtship. Um, And it is Churchill that is having to do all of the courting. Um, As he famously said to his private secretary, Jock Colville, no lover ever studied every whim of his mistress as I did those of President Roosevelt. <laughs> and, and certainly in that initial phase of the yeah. relationship, it is Churchill who is having to do all of the running. Then I think you, you know, post Pearl Harbor, you enter into what you might describe, extending this analogy as a honeymoon period, where the, the two men are able to work very, very closely together. You know and, and this is the period really of the, the building of the special relationship, creation of the combined um, chiefs of staff, the the development really of a, a truly sort of unified um, anglo um, American war strategy that takes the war into North Africa um, and, and then into Sicily and, and and Italy. And I think you know in that period there's no doubt that the two men are working very closely together. that They're enjoying one another's um, company. Um, And and as individuals, um, I think there's no doubt that that, that they had quite a lot in common um, and and, and that they were able to to get on and, and, and to work together. But of course, that individual relationship is always complicated by issues of competing national strategy. And when you get towards the the end of the Second World War, the sort of period from the Tehran Conference um, onwards, um, then I think you enter a a third period in the relationship um, where the two men are starting to sort of drift um, apart from one another. Um, Roosevelt is determined to establish um, a bilateral relationship with Stalin, independent of, of Churchill. Um, and to some extent, seeks to sideline um, Churchill um, at, at the Tehran Conference, which is something that, that, that Churchill feels um, very keenly. Um, and of course, you know, the two men are thinking about what is going to happen after victory, after the war. And for Churchill, that is all about the preservation, not just of Britain, but also of her empire. And that's not an aim which Roosevelt shares. For Roosevelt, the primary aim is the creation of the United Nations, and for that he needs not just the um, the alliance with, with Britain, but but also to establish relations with Stalin, and the Soviet Union, and 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 also with China. Um, and so, I think you see this period towards the end of the war where they are no no longer as close um, as uh, 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 as they were in the period sort of forty one to forty three.
2: During the brief overlap in office that Churchill and Truman had how did they interact and when after Churchill left office in 45 did he remain in contact with president truman
1: yeah, well i mean i mean of course churchill um, was very you know even though the relationship with roosevelt um, had changed and was perhaps more distant by 1945 there's no doubt that he was still incredibly shocked by by roosevelt's death something that, that uh, of course he could not be prepared for and which then sort of raises huge question marks over the future of the Anglo-American alliance. Um, and I've often been asked why it was that that, that Churchill didn't go to President Roosevelt's funeral. Um, now, of course, one of the reasons may have been his own health, which by this point was declining. But I think there may also have been a political calculation here. Churchill had always been desperate to get President Roosevelt to um, to come to the UK um, and to host a, a meeting in the UK. And the president ne- never came. It was always Churchill that, that, that had to do the travelling, had to cross the Atlantic, had to, um, to brave these um, um, U-boat-infested waters and, and um, planes um, with, without pressurised cabins. And so I think Churchill took the calculation um, that if he didn't go to the funeral and didn't meet Truman for the first time there... Um, it was possible that Truman would come to the UK. If if that was the case, of course, he was disappointed because um, Truman didn't, and the two men meet for the first time at the Potsdam Conference just before, of course, Churchill loses the the, the 1945 um, general election. So they don't really have time to develop much of of a rapport and a relationship before Churchill loses office. But I think what's more interesting is what happens next because Truman, I think, goes out of his way to keep Churchill informed and engaged, um, even though he's no longer prime minister, he's the, the, the leader of the British opposition. But Truman knows that Churchill is still a huge force on the world stage um, and, 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 I, and, and someone who, you know, in a sense, he can use um, to help advance Um, a Western line against Stalin. Um, And, and of course, it is Truman who brings Churchill to the United States in March 1946 to deliver the famous Iron Curtain speech when when Churchill makes that famous warning about Soviet expansionism across Eastern Europe from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Now, Churchill delivers that speech at Westminster College, Fulton, Missouri, and the reason that he goes to Fulton, Missouri is because that invitation comes with a handwritten codicil from President Truman, which says, this is a wonderful college in my home state. If you come, I'll introduce you. And of course, Churchill comes because he knows that by coming, it means that he will be hosted by the president. He will spend time with the president traveling out uh, uh, to Fulton, Missouri. He will have the president's ear, um, and he will also be introduced by the president, um, and that this occasion will therefore be covered um, by by the world's media.
2: When Churchill became prime minister again, his old wartime associate, Dwight Eisenhower, by that point, was in the White House. What was their relationship like during the war, and how did that how is that similar or different from the relationship when Ike was serving as president?
1: Great question. And I think the answer is that it was very different and in a way that Churchill hadn't anticipated and suspected. During the war, um, and, you know, Churchill does get to know Eisenhower um, um, well. And, and Eisenhower, although he's not reporting directly to Churchill, although he's reporting to General Marshall, Marshall and to the combined chiefs of staff in Washington, D.C., um, Mar- Eisenhower always goes out of his way, I think, to keep Churchill um, informed um, and and, and involved. And that's something that that, that Churchill appreciates. And I think at this this time, during the war, Eisenhower is quite deferential um, towards Churchill. What's interesting is that all changes um, in the 1950s when Churchill is back as prime minister and Eisenhower is is president. I think Churchill expects that their, that to some extent, their relationship will be able to resume in, in the same way, and, and, and that therefore he will have a certain amount of um, leverage um, with, with Eisenhower. Now, no doubt, he did have some leverage, but I think not as much as he expected. I, I think Eisenhower makes it very clear um, that that now that he's president. Um, the relationship is on a slightly different footing. So although he hugely admires um, Churchill personally, um, he's not going to allow American policy to be dictated to by Britain. And that becomes very clear at the Bermuda summit in November 1953. Um, Churchill um, attends that summit hoping um, to persuade Eisenhower to enter um, into a dialogue with the Russians and, and, and in fact, to hold um, now a a summit meeting with um, Stalin's um, successors. And and Eisenhower makes it very clear, using the most undiplomatic language, um, that that is not going to happen. He says, um, basically, according to to Jock Colville's diary, that um, Russia is a woman of the streets and it doesn't matter whether her clothes are old or new. It is still the same whore underneath. Quite-
2: tell us, tell us what you really think. <laughs> that's uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> My gosh. Um, well, I know
2: Churchill had left office earlier in the year, if I'm remembering correctly, before the Suez Crisis. But what what were his comments on that, and Eisenhower's uh, disapproval of the actions of of the British, French, and Israelis uh, during that crisis?
1: Well, of course, having just left office. Churchill Mm -hmm. has to be very circumspect about Mm -hmm. what he says um, uh, 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 about Suez. Uh, um, But what is very clear and clear from his correspondence with Eisenhower and with others is that he is hugely concerned um, about the detrimental impact that that this could have on Anglo-American relations. Um, Churchill believed that Britain derived her her power and her influence in the world from sitting at the focal point of three overlapping circles. And those overlapping circles were the Empire and Commonwealth, um, her relationship with Europe, um, and her relationship with the wider English-speaking world, by which he increasingly came to mean the United States. And if you look at those three circles, by the time Churchill steps down um, in 1955, Europe is is, is still in ruins and and recovering from the the Second World War. The the empire is is really no more and we're retreating from from empire. And so increasingly, um, he sees Britain as being tied to, to to the United States and you know, sees the importance of the, of, the, of the two countries working in close harmony. Um, and of course, Suez threatens to undermine all of that. Churchill's advice to his to his cabinet um, as he stepped down in 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 1955 had been to remember the Americans. And uh, of course um, um, Eden had almost immediately gone his own way. So I, I think there's no doubt that, that, that Churchill, um, while being very careful about what he said in public, w- w- was, was, was probably very shaken um, by, by the Suez Crisis. Um, and I think it, it, it hints at a sort of a bigger tension in Anglo-American relations, which you can see in some of the Churchill-Eisenhower correspondence in the 1950s, which is that America is becoming far more concerned about what is happening in the Pacific, whereas um, for the British, um, it's Europe and the Middle East um, uh, that, that remain absolutely sort of central.
2: Now the legend, and tell me if this is true or not, the legend is that when Churchill first met a young John F. Kennedy on board a yacht, he mistook him for a waiter. Is there any truth to that story, Alan? Well,
1: like you, I, I've heard that story repeated. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether there is any truth for it. I, I've never seen any written evidence for it in the in the in the Churchill archives. But of course, it's not the sort of thing that that, that would, would be, be be written down. <laughs> right. um, so, of course, it, it may well be true. And, and of course, you know, you you have to remember that. Um, you're talking about a period now where Churchill is um, a very old man, where his powers, both mental and, 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 and physical, um, are declining. Um, and it's certainly true that, you know, as he continues to sort of to travel the world, traveling with on, on on the Christina, um, you know, it, it is commonplace for, um the, the great and the good to seek him out and to introduce themselves to him. And they, it, it's not always clear, you know, how much of that he is able to take in. Of course. Of
2: course. That we know they met in nineteen fifty nine and that JFK, from my understanding, spoke with Churchill about his presidential ambitions. Do we know the details of that conversation in nineteen
1: fifty nine? I I wish I did. Um I mean I there, there may well be more information um on it. Um In in the Kennedy Presidential Library,
2: right, right. Do we know uh, during JFK's sadly short time in the Oval Office what Churchill thought of his presidency?
1: Um, I I think I'm not sure that 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 we do. I mean, and again, you're talking about a point now where where Churchill has reached a point where it, it is now quite difficult for him to engage at the level. Um, that he engaged previously. I mean, it's noticeable that when Churchill visits New York for the last time um, in 1961 um, on board Anastas' yacht, um, President Kennedy um, contacts the yacht and speaks to Anthony Montague Brown, Churchill's um, um, private secretary. And Kennedy is very keen to meet up with Churchill and says, you know, that he will send a helicopter um, over to New York to, to fly Churchill um, and, and to the White House. Um, and Anthony Montague Brown has to make a very difficult unilateral decision um, that his boss is no longer up to this um, and and turns the invitation down. And then, of course, he has to sheepishly explain to, to Churchill um, what he's done. And and interestingly, according to Anthony Montague-Brown, Churchill endorses that decision.
2: When Churchill passed away in 1965, neither President Johnson nor Vice President Humphrey attended the funeral. And I think the belief is that LBJ had been told perhaps not to travel. He'd recently been ill. How was this viewed in the UK? And did it have any impact on US-British relations? I
1: mean... I don't think it did, for the simple reason, of course, that that, President, that former President Eisenhower did attend, um, and, and, and not only attended, but also um, took a major part in in, in the commentary. Um, and of course, you know, he he was you know incredibly well known um, in, in in Britain as a sort of great um, 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 wartime figure. Um, now, of course, you know, there are sort of undercurrents about vietnam and um, between lbj and and, and and um um wilson um that that that, that may have influenced all, all of this but, but i think it's it, it is more likely that 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 lbj was simply advised that that it, it wasn't possible for him to travel um, i i don't think um that this was um a sort of deliberate slight and sort of in return for Churchill not attending Roosevelt's
0: funeral. Now, Alan, we've talked a lot about these different presidents and their their interactions with the famous Churchill. Let's get your thoughts on the following. Churchill was a very accomplished painter. Of these men, whom would he have liked to paint?
1: Yeah, well, of course... Churchill specialised in um, still lifes and landscapes. He, he didn't do very many portraits. It's it's quite you know, there, there are just a few. He did a he did a self portrait. He did a portrait of Clementine. But but on the whole, um, I don't think he enjoyed painting people. And um, having said that, he was very aware in 1955 that President Eisenhower, um, who would also taken up painting, was painting him and. Um, and there's a wonderful exchange between the two of them um, in, in, in their correspondence in which Churchill claims full rights of retaliation. So I think if he was <laughs> going to paint any of them, it would probably have been Eisenhower.
2: And we know that President George W. Bush took up painting in part because he read Churchill's work about, uh, about painting, yeah. And,
1: and has done a portrait of Churchill.
0: Of these presidents that we've talked about, whom would he pick? To be stranded on a deserted island with
1: <laughs> well, I mean I, I think for Churchill, a deserted island would be an absolute nightmare uh, <laughs> um, this is someone um you know who was easily satisfied with the best um, and was used to having sort of people a- a- around him sort of at his 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 beck and call, so if he was really going to be stuck on this desert island, you know it would have to be someone. Who he could engage in deep and serious conversation with. So, I mean, of the presidents that, that he knew and worked with, I, I suspect that would have been FDR. Um, although, of course, you know, he, he would have had to have had a supply of his own alcohol because he hated <laughs> FDR's martinis.
0: <laughs> so, on the opposite side of that, of the presidents we talked about, whom would he avoid? If he saw them across the room at a party.
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't know that, you know, he would have sought to to, to avoid anyone in, in that, you know, um Churchill wasn't averse to, to entering into um arguments as 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 as, as well as conversations. Um, um so you know, with with, with some of these individuals, he, he might have relished the opportunity to pick a fight. Um but I mean I, I think given what we've already said in this podcast, um, you know. He didn't have the greatest admiration for for Coolidge. Um, um, It would have been very interesting to see a conversation between Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt. Um, Mm. You you would think that they were very alike in in many ways, both sort of men of words and action, um, and whose careers, to some extent, sort of parallel one another. And yet we know that Theodore Roosevelt did not um, like Winston Churchill um, they, they met as, uh, as, 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 young men. Um, and there's a, a wonderful quote from, from Roosevelt where he says that, you know, um, he didn't like Winston Churchill. Um, uh, you know, he, he didn't like the father and he, and he, and he, and he didn't like the son. So, um, <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> um I, I, so, but, 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 but I don't know. I, I, I don't know that Churchill would have ever sought to avoid any American president.
0: Like I'm just imagining the conversation between the two. Oh my gosh! Yeah, would have been fascinating to be in on. Uh, Last one on this line of questioning: whom would he trust to be the executor of his will? Uh,
1: Short answer: None of them. I don't think he would ever have trusted another politician (laughs) to be the executor (laughs) of his will.
0: Finally, Alan, in just uh, one sentence or two, I'll give you two. Can you describe his relationship with not necessarily a specific POTUS, but the office of the president?
1: Well, I'll do it in one word for you. I I think respectful. Um, I think, you know, Churchill always appreciated that the president of the United States um, was not just the country's senior politician, but also um, the, the head of state. Um, and I think you know he was always respectful of
2: the office alan it's It's been so great having you on American Potus I'm recalling I believe it was in two thousand six or seven. I visited you at the Churchill Archive Center at Cambridge. a wonderful place uh encourage everyone to go and and see it and visit it and use its resources. You introduced me then to Churchill's one of his favorite drinks what do you recall what that was? We had that evening, a wonderful evening at at dinner at the high table at Churchill College.
1: Well, I mean, of course, as I said, he was easily satisfied with the best. So there are several candidates here. Um, I mean, his favorite champagne was was Paul Roger champagne. Um, In terms of um, um, his spirits, I mean, his his spirits of choice would be, um, I I think, either um, diluted whiskey or brandy.
2: Yes, I I believe we had a, a very fine brandy that night and I enjoyed it so much. And as I enjoyed uh, this episode, Alan, thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS.
1: It's been great fun. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show and the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Alan Packwood for joining us on this episode about Winston Churchill. More information on his book, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode, or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter, so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our last word from Winston Churchill, quote, success is not final, failure is not fatal, it is the courage to continue that counts.